Hey everybody, this is Nick Gibson. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. I'm here today with Eric Stanley, who is serving with Alliance Defending Freedom as their senior counsel, um, in re- specifically in relationship to um, uh, re- lit- litigation referring to autonomy of the church and freedom of protection with religion in the First Amendment. He's um, specifically focuses on religious liberty and constitutional law. He has an MDiv, a Master's of Divinity from Liberty Baptist Seminary, and also a JD um, from Temple University. So he's legally trained and theologically trained, God help us all. Um, so Eric, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. And we're in a series um, uh, based on a book by um, Russell Moore called Onward. And one of the weeks of that series is on um, religious liberty. And so we thought it'd be great if we could interview somebody that was um, in the fight of that right now um, and we could, might be able to learn from. So thanks so much yeah. for being with us. Oh, Nick, it's great to be with you and thanks for having me on. Really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to dive right in because we don't have a lot of time with you. Um, so one, um, the United States is a little bit different than some other nations where we have a sort of constitutional reality of a separation of church and state. Um, and a lot of people believe, believe that's to protect the government, but a lot of people have recognized historically that was really to protect the church and to see it flourish. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, the original concept of separation of church and state, as our founders intended, was really to protect the church. It was to kind of keep the state on its own side of the wall, so to speak, so that it wouldn't infringe upon the ability of the church to minister freely, to freely exercise religion. That that thinking is healthy for the church, obviously, as we've seen in church history before, where the state has not stayed on its side of the wall, where it has come in and really infringed upon the free exercise of religion, has hindered the expression of the gospel, uh, all of those kinds of things that have happened in church history that we're, we're aware of. But what's happened in modern times is that that's kind of morphed into this idea that separation of church and state means that religious people and churches really just should stay out of the culture, out of the public square, out of government, and really shouldn't have anything to say that there should be this kind of uh, naked public square, you know, so to speak, uh, and that really religion has no place in it. And that's really a harmful idea of separation of church and state. Uh, what we like to do is to go back and to understand that the separation of church and state is there for the thriving of the church, to keep the government out of the internal affairs in the, of the church, to protect the independence of the church. And that's really what it was intended to be, not to silence people of faith. And would you include in that the protection of the church's right to speak about government politics and things in the public yeah. square. Yeah, absolutely. You know, separation of church and state was never intended to keep the church silent. Uh, in fact, uh, the church has a lot to say, uh, and scripture itself has a lot to say about government and about the relationship of government to its citizens and the, and the relationship of citizens to the government. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about justice and the administration of justice through government. And so, there's a lot that the church can and should be saying to government. Uh, and so to buy into the idea that the separation of church and state means that people of faith just have to be silent uh, really denies that reality, but also uh, puts people of faith and, and, and Christians into a box, so to speak, to say, okay, I'm not going to speak out on this, even though that I know I should be speaking out. Mm-hmm. So we're really trying to combat that idea that the separation of church and state means that people should just be silent. Yeah. All right, let me combine a couple of questions that we were going to ask you. One, why do we need an alliance defending freedom? And then sort of related to that, too, is um, some people kind of some people in the American church kind of feel like is is attacks against religious freedom really accelerating? Is religious freedom in America becoming increasingly imperiled or is that just the news 
these cycles? Yeah, yeah, I definitely get the question itself because a lot of times it's hard to discern. Sometimes there's alarmist language out there uh, about what could what is happening in culture. Uh, but it, I'm not being alarmist to say that religious freedom is imperiled more now uh, than it has ever been at any time since our founding. Uh, we're seeing increasingly a government that denies the ability of people to freely live out their faith, to share their faith. Uh, we see a, a government that sees no problem with infringing upon the free exercise of religion of the church in certain instances. In fact, my team is litigating a case right now out of Iowa involving a church that's been told by the Iowa Civil Rights Commission that it has to open its facilities in ways that violate its faith. So an example would be to open its showers and restroom facilities to members of the opposite sex anytime that it does an outreach to the public in its own building. That is a government that denies the ability of the church to freely live out its faith, uh, and, and it really denies religious freedom. We, we've also seen this, too, in the kind of the rhetoric of some of our governmental leaders as they talk about freedom of worship uh, and not free exercise of religion. They kind of draw that distinction there, and freedom now of worship is, it, now is that's a much really more common, content. right? That, I mean, you, you say that, I think people could hear that in passing, but that's yeah. really big, right? It is big, and it's something that uh, some of our governmental leaders have have started to kind of take up as a mantra that we have the the freedom to worship, Mm -hmm. uh, but not necessarily the freedom to exercise our religion. And freedom to worship is a much more limited concept. It's maybe the freedom to be within the four walls of our church and to turn the sound down and just to make sure that we don't bother anybody as we worship within the four walls of the church. But it does not encompass a life of integration uh, where we integrate our faith into everything that we do in our work and our relationships as we share our faith, as we live our faith, uh, and as our faith is integrated into all of our actions. Well, we would have so that's not before, really an idea that some in government really embrace these days. In fact, they say the exact opposite. Right. And that would include losing what we would have called what we call freedom of conscience. Absolutely. As part and, and of our religious and that's where expression. We're seeing yeah, that's where we're really seeing an unprecedented attack right now is on freedom of conscience, the ability uh, of, of people to live out their faith freely. And we've got numerous clients at Alliance Defending Freedom who just simply are trying to live out their faith in their work, uh, in their job, uh, the florists, and the and we have cake makers. And, and even down to a recent case that we just filed uh, actually here in Phoenix involving uh, two young ladies who have a calligraphy business, and they they make uh, art for uh, for wedding invitations and, and things of that nature. But yet they're being told, "Well, you have to pour your creative efforts into something that would violate your faith." Uh, and that's not the free exercise of religion. That is more akin to the freedom of worship that I talked about, where you just have to confine the freedom of worship to the church. And when you go out into the marketplace or into the culture then you cannot freely exercise your faith. And so today we're really facing a government that is increasingly at odds with faith, is increasingly at odds with the free exercise of religion, sees no problem at all with trampling upon the rights of not only Christians, but churches as well. Um, in, in the book Onward, Russell Moore says basically that where religious freedom seems to be coming in, con- in, in conflict is mainly in relationship to cultural and secular definitions of sex, that issues related to homosexuality, transgender, marriage, those kinds of areas seems to be the fulcrum of where all this is coming up that I, I, I can't remember what, what administration, but one of the officials was said, if 
rights related to sex and rights related to religion come in conflict, which trumps what? And the government official said, well, sex would have to trump religion. Hmm. Are you familiar with that? Or do you, can you say anything about that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's exactly right. And I think we see that we're, we're constantly seeing that here at Alliance Defending Freedom. Uh, what I call the conflict between religious liberty and, and rights and claims to sexual autonomy, mm-hmm. the idea that sexual autonomy trumps everything, you know, even religious liberty. And so you'll see some governmental officials who will say things like you just mentioned or will say even, um, you know, that that religion has to change and deep-seated religious beliefs about sexuality have to change. Right. Uh, you know, we're looking it's at their a culture place right to now, tell people that. Yeah, we're looking at a culture right now that even denies the very reality that there is such a thing as male and female, that there's a binary concept of sex, that mm-hmm. your gender can be determined in your own mind. And so for a Christian to stand or for a church or a pastor to stand and to proclaim God's truth that in the in the beginning God created them male and female is something that draws us into conflict with the culture and increasingly with the legal authorities because there's been a proliferation of non-discrimination laws across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call them SOGI laws, S-O-G-I, sexual orientation, gender identity, non-discrimination laws. And they appear at the state level, at the local level, at the county level. And, and they'll say things like, if you're a place of public accommodation, or you are an employer, or you do housing, or you do education, you cannot discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. The case that I mentioned in Iowa with the church that we are representing, that is one of those laws where the state is saying to the church, because we have this non-discrimination law, we can come in and force you to not discriminate, quote unquote, in your building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can force you thereby to use your facilities in ways that violate your faith. That's These laws are at issue in the business owners and the creative professionals that we represent where, you know, I think of Baronel Stutzman, the 70-year-old florist in, in Washington mm-hmm. State, who f- willingly served people over the counter, mm-hmm. sold flowers to a homosexual man for nine years, but just could not take the step of putting her creative talents into creating something for a wedding ceremony, a same-sex wedding ceremony. And now she stands to lose everything, both professionally and personally, because of that. It so was prosecuted really by the state of Washington, by their attorney general, right? It's, it's the Washington Attorney General who filed suit against her, and now yeah. the ACLU has piled on as well. Right, um, but it's, it's one thing to be like the gay person who was offended saying, I'm suing you. It seems like it's another step to say the district attorney for the state is suing you. <laughs> I, I mean, well, that's right. Don't you think? Yeah, it really is, and, and I think that illustrates just the, the level to where, where we are. Um, there are calls for Congress to put this type of non-discrimination law into federal law. And so it would be the Department of Justice who would be going after people and saying, you're discriminating and we can levy not only financial fines, but sometimes these laws call for criminal penalties as well. Mm-hmm. So we're dealing with a situation in another state with a church who's being told that they have to open their facilities in ways that violate their faith. And if they don't, it carries a criminal penalty of up to a year in jail for each occurrence. So, you know, when we, when the question you asked earlier about, you know, is this all just kind of hyperbole and you hear this in the news and the culture, unfortunately the answer is no. And I think in the church, we have to be sober minded about this. We have to understand that we're not given to alarmism. We're not given to extremism. 
But we are sober-minded to understand when things are serious, and they are serious right now. Okay, so there's another thing that I've heard sometimes from younger Christians, sometimes from people who are really into missions, who are aware of the growth of the church in China over the last 50 years, for example. And they'll say something like, Nick, I understand that, but isn't the American church kind of fat anyway? I mean, aren't don't we need a little persecution? I mean, I mean, Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Wouldn't in the long run for the kingdom of God, wouldn't isn't it kind of good for us to be persecuted? And I'm not going to tell you what I think about that, but I would. I mean, what do you think about it? is that? Is that plausible? Hopelessly naive? What would you say to somebody who shared that idea with you? Yeah, well, I I guess I would say a couple of things. Uh, I I think first we have to set the framework for understanding that persecution and even the loss of religious liberty can be a tool of sanctification that the Lord can use in our lives and in the life of the church as a whole. Mm -hmm. And and so certainly if the Lord chooses to bring that along, uh, that is something that he can use uh, for our good, as it says in Romans 8.28, you know, right. to conform us to the image of Christ, as right. it says in Romans 8.29, you know, that that is the good that we're all, we're all moving toward. And God can use even those difficult and hard circumstances. So that's the framework. But we also have to understand that we are put on to this earth at this time, uh, in this place. None of us are here by accident. We are here to make an impact. We are told to go into all the world and make disciples. And, you know, yeah, we'll do that no matter how hard it is. But every time that we've seen in American history and in in the history of the world at large where governments have, have clamped down, it has an impact on the ability of the gospel to spread and on the ability of people to hear the gospel and to accept the gospel. Uh, The other piece of that that I would say is, you know, we as Christians have, an obligation to fight for justice and righteousness. You know, the, the scripture is replete with instances where God says he loves justice. God loves justice and he hates injustice. Right. And it is injustice to see a government that denies people the very right to express their faith. You know, I've always said that a government that is big enough to deny you the right to, to live out your faith is a government that's big enough to coerce you to do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that type of a government should scare us, and we should fight hard for justice and righteousness in a government that allows us to peacefully live out our faith and to share it with those around us and to, to be obedient to Christ, to be really to live that life, that integrated life where we can go into the culture, we can go into the, the place of business, we can go into the schools, and we don't have to set our faith aside. Uh, that's really what we should be striving for. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let me ask you um what about, um, like if somebody hears that and they go, and somebody says, oh gosh, it's so great. There's a lies defending freedom. Maybe I should give some money. You'd probably say something like, yes, you should. But, <laughs> but what, like, what, what can't you do for us? What can only, even if you had all the money in the world, you, you can't do for the Christian and the church. What is, what do we have to do for ourselves? Well, the one thing that we cannot do for you, for, for a Christian is to stand. We, I cannot file a lawsuit if I don't have a client. We cannot keep open the door for the gospel if we don't have anybody willing to walk through the door. Uh, so, you know, I, I've had numerous instances where I've wanted to challenge certain things that the government is doing over the years. I've been doing religious liberties litigation for 17 years now, and there are clients who are unwilling to stand up for whatever reason. And I certainly understand that. But that always stifles our ability to be able to make that impact and to make that difference, to fight for justice and righteousness. And so that's the one thing that we cannot do. 
is we cannot be the plaintiff. We cannot be the, the person who stands in the gap. And, and, but, but we can be the organization that comes alongside and will represent uh, people of faith. So I don't know if everybody knows this, but every, everything that ADF does is pro bono. It's free of charge. We're a legal ministry. Uh, we exist to keep the door open for the spread of the gospel. And we, we do that because there's a lot of people who wouldn't be able to afford to hire a good attorney. Uh, and so we want to provide that excellent legal representation uh, but it is an alliance, as our name says. It's a partnership, and we have to have Christians being willing to stand, being willing to exercise their faith, and then at that point of conflict with the government to be willing to partner with ADF and say, I'm going to push back on this, not only for me, uh, but also for future generations. And, and, and I'll just mention, too, briefly, that's something that Russell Moore always says or also says recently is, you know, we have to conserve the gospel. Uh, we're, we have a charge to do that, not only just for ourselves, but for future generations. Uh, and, and people standing up and filing lawsuits, exercising their rights as citizens that we have in order to protect our ability to live our faith and share it freely, that is the conservation of the gospel for ourselves, but also for future generations as well. Wait, let me ask you just one more question. Then. What, what would be three, are there maybe a few places where you would say, this is kind of where we need some bravery right now? Yeah, I would say a couple of things. Uh, I think we need bravery in the creative professionals realm. Those people who are who have businesses that are creative, where they, they, they take their God-given talents, they pour them into an effort to create something for the glory of God. That is where the kind of the heat of the battle is right now uh, in terms of lawsuits being filed. Um, you know, the Washington State case that we mentioned, the cake makers, uh, the, the calligraphy case that we mentioned. We just filed a lawsuit actually just this week in Colorado on behalf of uh, someone who makes websites and uh, does, is, does creative work in that realm, uh, graphic designing. So we need creative professionals to kind of take a stand immediately to say, I'm going to stand up and I'm, I am going to stand with ADF and, and maybe even file a lawsuit to protect my right and the rights of the others to freely live out our faith. And then we need pastors to stand. We need pastors to, to be courageous now. We're at a cultural moment where a pastor merely saying what the Bible says about things like life and about marriage and about human sexuality draws us into conflict with a culture. And pastors have to be courageous. But in order for pastors to be courageous, they have to have a courageous church as well, a, a people who will encourage their pastor to say, we appreciate what you're doing. We appreciate the stand you're making. You know, we're, we're with you on this. We want to hear more about these kinds of things. So uh, it, we don't need silence is what we don't need. Uh, we need Christians to continue to be courageous in the stand. Sweet. Well, um, <clears throat> Eric, thanks for taking more time than we had. We uh, asked for, for you. We really appreciate you talk with us. And, um, and we really, um, some people have never heard of Alliance Defending Freedom. I've known of its existence for years um, and have supported it personally myself. I love the ministry that you guys do. And I've been really encouraged um, by both the cases you've won and just the cases you fought. Mm-hmm. And um, um, we've, we're praying for you that God will give um, a new birth of freedom for the purposes of the gospel and for human flourishing in this nation and that it would be a light to others. So thanks so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. Well, Nick, thank you so much for your your work. Thanks for having me on today. And if anybody does want to know more about us, our website's the best way to do that, adflegal.org. 
um, that's the way you can connect with us. Yeah, great. Well, thanks for listening to Engage and Equip. I hope you guys are enjoying the Onward series, and we'll talk to you again real soon. All right, you just heard uh, Pastor Nick Gibson, who's here with me right now as well, um, interview Eric Stanley from the Alliance Defending Freedom. And um, there were just a couple follow-up questions that some people had with um, having done that interview. And so, um, Nick, at one point you said, this is where we need to be brave right now. So what exactly do you mean by bravery in terms of both mindset and action? Yeah, I think that it's wherever you come into this story in terms of generation, mm-hmm. right? You're, you have like a sense of like, what is normal for religious freedom? Mm-hmm. I think that there's a couple things that we need to be really clear about. One is um, Eric made a great point about the difference between freedom of religion and the freedom of uh, freedom of worship. Hmm. Um, and that, like, I remember reading a autobiography of um, Carl F. H. Henry. I think he wrote that one in 1982. And that he was traveling over to communist Russia. And over there, they were saying freedom of worship. Because in communist Russia, you did not have freedom of religion. But mm-hmm. a- after the after the Stalin period, and they realized they couldn't snuff out the Greek Orthodox Church and Christians, they decided to tolerate Christianity within the walls of the Orthodox Church. So you could go to the Orthodox Church, you could experience Mass, and that was totally fine. Mm-hmm. They just monitored what was preached, and they monitored who could be priest and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then you could walk out, and as long as it didn't affect how you lived under communism, as long as you loved the czar... Sure. Like yeah. the, you loved, I'm sorry, the, you know, the supreme leader and you were for mm-hmm. communism and you were fine. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is not, and Henry said, um, there's a difference between freedom of conscience and religion and freedom of worship. And he said that the Soviet feel he was talking to grinned when he said that hmm. because they realized they knew that distinction. Yeah. In their mind, that distinction was very clear yeah. and they were intentionally not giving people freedom of religion or conscience. Yeah. Only freedom of worship. And the reason they smiled is because almost nobody can actually actually knows the difference, can tell the difference, and can articulate mm-hmm. the difference. Mm-hmm. And so on one level, Christians have to get in their minds that it is a basic human right for people to live according to conscience mm-hmm. in a relationship to the truths of natural theology. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So on one level, you say, well, living according to conscience, what if in your conscience you believe that you can kill people? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, is that okay? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, no, there are some parameters you should put on what, what you... So I've said natural theology. There are certain things in the, in the nature of the world. But the fact is, is that people's consciences don't say that naturally, mm-hmm. right? Right. But there are certain things that we recognize um, and that our consciences do tell us, and those are connected to our religious and philosophical beliefs. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, we should be able to do those things. Je- Thomas Jefferson said, as long as it doesn't pick my pocket or break my leg mm-hmm. directly, mm-hmm. we should be able to do those things. Mm-hmm. That is closely related historically to freedom of association Hmm. because part of freedom and practice goes with being around people you want to practice similar things with. The problem is, is that that right, the freedom of association has been radically undermined in the history of America because of the civil rights movement, right? Hmm. Segregation was justified under freedom of association. Well, if I don't want to associate with black people, why should I have to? Mm-hmm. I'll have a whites-only golf club, right. right? And so people are like, well, you can't do that, right? And mm-hmm. so we made laws in order to undermine that use of freedom of association, mm-hmm. right? But what it does is undermines all freedom of association, right? right? So it's a unintended consequence of something that's actually a good thing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, 
But what it means is, is that we can't, um, there's, there are limitations on our freedom of association, but that association might be according to conscience Mm -hmm. or religious practice. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we need to recognize is we have to be able to say that religious freedom and freedom of conscience is no less a fundamental human right than any other freedom. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You see, secular people imagine that because religion is imaginary, that you can't treat it like it's real. Mm-hmm. Why, that's why um, a President Obama appointee, I think his, his last name, ironically, is Castro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, the I, and I, I can't remember if he works in health and human services, but he published a statement that basically said that all sexual freedoms trump religious freedoms. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you get to such a view? Mm-hmm. Right. If somebody in their mind imagines they're a man, though they're in a, the body of a woman. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're they say they're transgender. Right. Mm-hmm. And they go, I have a right to be called, you know, whatever I want or to mm-hmm. do whatever I want. And, mm-hmm. and if somebody has a religious objection for how, something they have to do in relationship to me, they they have to kowtow to me. Right. Mm-hmm. How could you possibly get to a place where their internally imagined sexuality trumps somebody else's, quote, internally imagined religion? Mm-hmm. Well, only if you believe that religion is more imaginary mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah. Right? That w- what somebody imagines their gender to be, that's somehow realer mm-hmm. than s- somebody's convictional beliefs about metaphysical morality mm-hmm. or spirituality, right? And so if you believe that's imaginary, then you can say, well, sexual rights must trump it because sexual, right, mm-hmm. sexual rights are real mm-hmm. and religion is imaginary. Mm-hmm. But the government has no right or ability to declare religion imaginary. Mm-hmm. Sure. Nor does it have any, uh, has no responsibility to do it. Has no ability, has no expertise to do it. Mm-hmm. What makes the government right? And if you well, it's democratic. Well, when is truth a function of votes? Mm-hmm. Right? Calvin Coolidge, a former American president, once said, um, "One person with the truth on their side is a majority," which is metaphysically true, right? right? And um, Martin Luther King said something very similar. I mean, he said a, a law that is not properly connected to justice, right? An unjust law doesn't have the force of law. Mm-hmm. Now you got to be careful with how you apply that because mm-hmm. there are there is a right submission to authority, right. even when the law isn't a good law, right? right. Um, but he was applying this to like segregation laws, right? right? And he's saying basically, I don't, I I'm supposed to disobey this law. Mm-hmm. It's moral for me to disobey it. It's immoral for me to obey it right. because the law is not in, that the government has made is not constant with the morality that God has made mm-hmm. or or revealed. However, you want to think of that philosophically. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, King and Coolidge were kind of on opposite sides of the political aisle, but they had the philosophy right, Mm -hmm. right? That one person with the truth is a majority. Mm -hmm. So the government has no expertise and the government has no right to dictate religion or conscience Mm -hmm. and therefore has no right to take away the freedoms of religion or conscience. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, part of this, Aaron, and I know this sounds difficult, is Christians actually need a limited Christian political philosophy. Not a one that's enough to be like, well, I'm a Democrat or Republican, mm-hmm. but that's enough to say the government has a limited sphere it's not supposed to cross. Mm-hmm. And when the Democratic Party says, hey, the government's going to be everything, Christians would be like, um, no. Right. And when maybe the Republican Party says the government isn't going to stop this thing, when the, it isn't the government's job to do mm-hmm. that, Christians yeah. go, um, no. Yeah. One of, the, one of the difficulties Christians have fallen into is that they fall into this idea that democracy is good like apple pie democracy is a horrible system of government it's always been right Mm -hmm. it's better than some of the alternatives and worse than some of the alternatives in different ways but christians come to this idea that democracy is good because we're americans we have to believe that Mm -hmm. therefore whatever 
through the democratic process, people say is good must somehow be good, unless it's like torturing babies. Mm-hmm. And so they come to these very strange notions like, you know, if if the government can rightfully tax, then it can tax us at 100%. Mm-hmm. Well, if the government taxes at 100%, we can't give anything to God. Mm-hmm. Right. So they don't. So the government actually doesn't have the right to do that because Christian exercise requires generosity towards the church and generosity directly to the poor, not through the government. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, if the government treats us as free people of conscience and religious faith, it can't take all our money. Mm-hmm. In fact, it has to leave us with disposable income beyond what we need to feed and clothe ourselves so that out of religious conviction and conscience, we have money left over to give, mm-hmm. which means we can't be a, social, a democratic socialist country. Mm-hmm. Such countries have no level of expendable right. income, right? right? That's why we have a missionary in Sweden who's led 200 people to Jesus. They have a church with like 250 people and they can't pay one pastor. Mm-hmm. Because the tax system it. is such yeah. Yeah. that all this money goes to the government so that they can get services mm-hmm. back and it leaves them no individual liberty by which to do things with their own money that they choose based right. on conviction and faith, right? Mm-hmm. So that that is not okay, mm-hmm. right? And But Christians, they don't, we don't think any of that through. Mm-hmm. We just go, well, yeah, I mean, the government should do good things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we don't say, actually, that's outside of the purview of government. There are some things that, like, it's very easy to be like, well, this would be good. This would be good. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to say, that's not your job. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? Like, a, we, a police car could come to your house and say, look, I can police your house. It would be good. Your house would be safer if I'm just here all the time. And you're like, yep, this is our house. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to be here. Mm-hmm. You don't have any right to be here. Mm-hmm. We don't want you here. This isn't your job. Mm-hmm. There's points where American Christians should be saying that to our government. Mm-hmm. Now, it, now you might be like, well, that sounds anti-democratic. That, that sounds like you're trying to make us Republicans. No. At certain times in history, excesses go one way or another. Right. And yeah. so there were, there were times where, like in what's called the, quote, robber baron era, where there was a huge change economically and... There were incredible numbers of poor people in cities and capital was really focused in factories and stuff like that. And people got really kind of social actiony and liberal about mm-hmm. that stuff. And most of those people were Christians, a lot of them Bible-believing Christians, mm-hmm. right? I don't look at those people and go, oh, you stinking Democrats. I, no, the, there was a time in history where the way things were set up and the way things were going, people were going kind of too far. Right. And, the, and there needed to be a moral and spiritual correction mm-hmm. to what was happening politically and economically. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right now, we're entering a period of expansive totalistic governments, Mm -hmm. okay? And we've, apparently a generation has gone by since socialism in the Soviet era, and we've forgotten what happens. And Venezuela apparently isn't teaching us. And so we're like, oh yeah, we should, we can only fix these problems through a very large federal government. Mm -hmm. We're really actually making bigger problems that's going to diminish our federal government so that we we have to do these things ourselves, which may be good, I don't know. But like at this moment, we have to say to the government, no. Mm-hmm. At other times, we may need to support it. Mm-hmm. Right During the American Revolution, people gave everything to support the government. During the Civil War, people in the North gave everything to support the success of the federal government. Mm-hmm. Right, Very devout Christians who believed in limited government and religious freedom. I mean, th- there's that famous letter from the guy, the northern gen- guy who died in Bull Run, the first battle. Mm-hmm. And he wrote to his wife, he says, I don't really want to die. I want to be married mm-hmm. to you. I want to love you f- and watch our kids grow up. But I believe that go- that I have to support the federal mm-hmm. government. Mm-hmm. It must survive in this moment, right? Mm-hmm. He wasn't a fascist. Right. It was at that moment, that was what was required. Right. And anybody who always says, we should go with the government, or we should always be against the government, or we should always, no. 
well, you should always know what the hu- the fundamental human rights given by God are. Mm-hmm. And when the government supports those things, great. Yeah. Within its sphere. And when it doesn't, we should say that. Right. So practical example, you've talked a little bit about the Johnson Amendment. Right. So can you briefly explain that a little bit and then um, and why it's important to know what that is and, and the awareness of it? All, yeah, all of that. Right. So sometime in the 1950s. All right, so this is President, um, so Lyndon B. Johnson gets up and he basically says, hey, we should put something in the IRS tax code that says um, anytime churches endorse a candidate, which to put this clearly, churches had been endorsing candidates in America since literally the time of just after the revolution. Okay. okay? Um, and a lot of churches do today. They're mainly minority churches mm-hmm. and liberal churches, mm-hmm. but they do. And, or two, if you speak in such a way about issues that any idiot in your congregation would know what you're saying, as determined by the IRS, you can lose your status as a nonprofit organization, okay. which will close most churches, right? just yeah. economically speaking. And endorse meaning like just someone could say it. Right. So if I got up as and I and it was reasonable that I was speaking for High Point Church mm-hmm. and I said, listen, you really should vote for Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. or you really should vote for Donald Trump because mm-hmm. um, that better fits our Christian faith. The IRS could take away our tax exempt status and take away our legal standing as an organization, mm-hmm. right? which which is, would be catastrophic for almost all churches, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been in the tax code. Now, here's the thing: it's never been prosecuted, hmm. but yet thousands and tens of thousands of churches in America don't say what they think because they're afraid of it. Yeah. And so um, the Alliance Defending Freedom said, "Okay, here's what we need to do: we need to everybody disobey it at once." Hmm. When was that? This was a cut. They did it in 2008 was the first time. Okay. They said, we need to get like one to 12,000 pastors to all get up the same Sunday and just utterly disobey this thing. All in the same yeah, viewpoint? So, yeah. Or no. All... No. Okay. They said, just get up okay. there and no, it has to be the opposite ones so that you can like be like, you mm-hmm. didn't prosecute this fairly. Right? Because huh. if, if, so basically like he said, I don't care. We don't care if you like Romney or, um, or President Obama. You just endorse somebody. Just mm-hmm. say something you're not allowed to say, basically. Mm-hmm. And so some people got up and said, you need to vote for Barack Obama because that fits our Christian faith. Some people said, Romney. Mm-hmm. Some people just said, you need to vote according to our beliefs and hear some of our beliefs or whatever. They just said something that could be construed by the IRS to point to a candidate or a party, right? And so they've been doing this now since 2008 every year oh. to basically make this Johnson Amendment, which is a, which tell the government tells the church what it can and can't say. That's totally out of bounds, mm-hmm. right? Every Christian should know that. Mm-hmm. Even candidates. You might be like, well, the government should be able to say if you're a nonprofit. No, it shouldn't. Mm-hmm. The government should not be able to regulate anything a church says, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's even some debate as to whether or not they should be able to re- regulate things that are treasonous. But that's mm-hmm. another yeah. debate, right? But th- this is, that's not what this is, right? right? And so um, since 2008, an increasing number of churches and pastors have basically, whenever election cycle came around, they'll say something to like openly disobey this amendment so that it's impossible for the IRS to ever prosecute it with anyone. Because mm-hmm. if they went to one church and they were like, look, you said this thing, we're going to, like, the ALDF will sue them the next day and say, look, there's 40,000 churches in America that have been explicitly disobeying mm-hmm. this unless you're prepared to prosecute all of them. Right. You can't prosecute this one. Mm-hmm. And then the IRS will be like, oh, guess we can't do yeah. Like, that's kind of the idea, right? Mm-hmm. So massive social disobedience on an impracticable law that most Americans don't know exist, mm-hmm. but most pastors do. Right. right. So, like, when it gets election year this year, I'm probably going to break that law. 
just because I'm just going to add my list to my name to the list. I should have done it in 2008, but I wasn't mm-hmm. here and I wasn't the lead person. And I didn't even know it happened. Mm-hmm. But that's like one way in which churches can um, disobey together. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's, there's also ways in which churches can decide how we need to encourage people. Because like right now, the biggest thing is this whole like, um, do you have to do what people tell you to do with your talents and abilities? Right. So it's, it's been like, do you have to do flowers for gay weddings? Do you have to do right. do photography for gay weddings and so on? Mm-hmm. And um, generally speaking, now, not every Christian believes that this is a place where you have to take an ethical stand. I'm actually not sure if it is or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't really know for sure. I do believe that a Christian should be able to say no. Um, partly because when you when it comes to weddings, the issue is not whether or not you will sell somebody something. It's whether or not you will confess that something means something. Mm-hmm. So when a gay person comes and says, hey, I want you to do flowers for my wedding. They're not just saying, hi, I'm a gay person. I want to buy flowers. There's something that you sell I wish to buy that has no inherent meaning. I give it the meaning, right? Mm-hmm. And you give it without meaning, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, but you say, no, there is this event that I'm going to be part of. That something is happening that I am calling a wedding, right? right? Th- that I am saying constitutes a marriage, right? Mm-hmm. And therefore forms a family. And I'm telling you that you have to produce something that affirms that profession. Mm-hmm. So that in creating the object, you are si- you are agreeing with a statement and confessing a statement that something is something, that it means something, and that it constitutes something. Now, I'm not sure you can't do that as a Christian because I'm not sure that creating that item is a confession, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, but it is a participation in a celebration that is an affirmation and a confession, right? Mm-hmm. So I think you should be able to say no. I'm not sure you can't say yes, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yep. Um, but I don't think anybody should be able to force anybody to do it. Right. Because to be consistent, you would have to say that if, if a Jewish baker – had a Palestinian person come in and say, I would like to ha- you to make me a second entifada cake where we celebrated that we were going to kill the pig Jews. Mm-hmm. And I want to have, I want you to have a Jewish person who's like a pig and like a swastika over a star of David right. because I want to celebrate, I'm, I'm celebrating the second entifada with my friends mm-hmm. and I have the right to buy a cake from you, mm-hmm. right? And you have to sell me a cake because you can't discriminate against me. Mm-hmm. And I want you to make this cake, right? Yeah. Ultimately, what you're saying is that Jewish baker has to make that cake. Mm-hmm. Even though that cake celebrates a genocide right. of his own people. Right. And hopefully the coming genocide of his own people mm-hmm. when the, the ultimate triumph happens. Right. right? Like, like, I believe that that person should be able to be like, you know what? I'm not going to make that right. cake. Yeah. Now, people might buy fewer cakes from him. He might have fewer Palestinian customers. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but I don't, for example, there was a person at, I think an African-American at a Walmart recently who was asked by a police officer's wife to make a Blue Lives Matter cake. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yes, black lives matter, but so do blue lives matter. All lives matter, right? I want to make it blue. And that person said, no, it's racist. I'm not making it. And there was this big hullabaloo loud mm-hmm. about it. I mean, I just, I don't think that person should be forced to make that cake. Mm-hmm. Now, he might lose it. Now, I think, I also think Walmart has the right to fire him for not making the cake. Sure. I think Walmart is going to get some egg on their face if they don't do something about it. But probably Walmart has two cake makers. And probably Walmart can ask the other cake maker to make the Blue Lives Matter cake. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we have to force this other guy to make a Blue Lives Matter cake if he doesn't want to. Because 
It's a matter of conviction and conscience. And human conviction and conscience is enormously sacred. Mm-hmm. See, that's the issue. Yeah. The issue is, is that you are not a pragmatic piece of meat. You are a living soul and being that bears the image of God. And therefore, what happens in the center of your conscience is the spiritual and moral seat of being. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing more sacred than that. Mm-hmm. Literally nothing. And so Christians have always believed that you cannot ask somebody to violate their conscience. Mm-hmm. Historically, it's meant even in, when it's their duty to go to war, to defend your life. Mm-hmm. That's what conscientious objector meant. That if, if it was time to go to war and you got drafted and you're like, look, I, I don't believe I can kill someone. And you could lead, your objection could lead to my death because it's your job to defend our nation together to protect both of us. Mm-hmm. We still said, okay, you'll do another job mm-hmm. while we're at war, which doesn't involve killing people mm-hmm. because we cannot violate your conscience. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, if we could not, if we could allow people to avoid war because of conscientious objection, the idea that we cannot allow them to avoid making a cake. Sounds really odd Mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. Especially if somebody else can make the cake or they can make a generic cake Mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah. In most cases, the flower people are like, I'll sell you flowers. I just can't do wedding arrangements. Mm -hmm. I can sell you a cake. I just can't do a gay wedding cake. Mm -hmm. Right? The the question that the church has to ask is, where do we have to actually protest? Right. Where is it? Is it at work when we, when we're asked to call a transgender person by an openly female name? Or do we just do that Mm -hmm. and say, yeah. This is just part of living in this kind of society, right? Mm-hmm. Does a teacher who's being asked to teach kids that are prepubescent about about being gay and transgendered in a way that is very like very confusing for them? Mm-hmm. So we've had families say, um, my like third graders come home from Cottage Grove School, actually, in the case I'm thinking of right now, and said, I think I'm gay because I don't like boys. Right? She's like six. Right. So like she doesn't really get yeah. that she hasn't hormonally developed and she doesn't like anyone yet right. sexually. And yeah. so, yeah, of course she doesn't like boys. She's really confused thinking that maybe she likes, maybe she's gay because she doesn't, or maybe she's transgendered or maybe she's androgynous mm-hmm. because she doesn't really like boys yet. And she's six, mm-hmm. right? That like if Christians say, I mean, Christians have tried to say, it's just, this isn't age appropriate. Mm-hmm. And it's partly false too. Right. Right. And so Christians have to really, so we have a teacher at High Point who like, she's in the public school. She's in the school that's like on the, the cutting, the open edge of like the whole transgender thing. Mm -hmm. And she's being, she's like, she's part of that. And she knows if she says this, she could lose her job. Mm -hmm. But part of what Christians have to do is be really smart. Mm -hmm. Because if you're kind of an idiot about it, then we can't. We can't actually make a protest out of it. Right. And so one of the things I think every Christian, that's what like an alliance defending freedom is for, is to say, I think I might need to take this action. Mm-hmm. But that's a good time to get in, in touch with like America, ACLJ, American Center for Law and Justice, mm-hmm. or ADF, and be like, hey, I think I need to do this. How should I go about doing yeah. it? So that when you do, you already have somebody that knows you're doing it. There's right. already some kind of recourse, and you know you've done it the right way from the beginning. Right. If you just do whatever you want, um, and then you're like, well, I have this right because I'm a Christian, oftentimes it's really hard to defend you. Mm-hmm. And so there's ways that Christians can band together. And then the, the last thing is, dang it, give to give to one of these things. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Alliance Defending Freedom is pretty well funded, but these cases, of course, are very expensive. Right. And they make a, very, a big difference. There are cases that the Alliance Defending Freedom has won 
that has significantly changed our, the religious freedom you and I enjoy right now. Mm. And so as much as sometimes it's kind of like, ah, oh, do we really want to fight and make a big issue out of this? We win some cases. And that does preserve religious freedom, not just for us, but for everybody. Mm. And we're going to have to find a way to to engage with this and learn how to live plurally mm. in, in a culture. Because I think a Christian... I think a Christian could can say to like a, a gay couple, "Like, hey, we want this wedding cake." Listen, I don't believe in gay marriage. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just to be straight with you. Mm-hmm. Okay, but you're I know you're gonna have a celebration and you want a really great cake and everything. So, I mean, I can make you a cake. I, I I'm not gonna do all the decorating maybe that you want, mm-hmm. but I can make you a cake. I'll sell you a cake and I hope that you have a great day. Mm-hmm. But I can't. I can't profess that. Just mm-hmm. like, just like there are other things that people have asked me to make that I can't make. You, like, but if, if if you won't make a, if you're a Christian, you make a gay marriage marriage cake. You you shouldn't make some ridiculously terrible frat cake either. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like if you, yeah. that's one of the things that I think some Christians have gotten in trouble with. Mm-hmm. That's fair. That if you believe in biblical godliness and you can't sell into actions of ungodliness, which I'm not saying you shouldn't. I don't really take big closed-minded positions on that. Mm-hmm. Um. But if you decide you can't make a, a gay cake, you need to think about whether or not you can make a, a frat open smoker, dad's thank you for your daughter's cake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, Christians have believed for a very long time that you you aren't responsible for the implications of your job mm-hmm. within the general action. So, for example, every Christian who is uh, who delivers mail, mm-hmm. every single one de- mm-hmm. delivers porn to people. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Every single one. Every single one t- brings lies to people. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So can there be no Christian delivery people because of that? Right? Mm-hmm. And the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Right? They you they can't take on to themselves responsibility for all of that. Right. Just like if you're in an ice cream shop, you can't take fundamental responsibility for people who might get fat because of what right. they eat. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, or, or you can't be a peanut farmer because somebody with a peanut allergy might eat that and die. Mm-hmm. There are limits to like what you can do with that. And so I think Christians need to think very carefully through when they might want to protest, but they really shouldn't. Mm-hmm. That's, an, that's an important question. Too. Yeah. Yeah. To be aware of that, to be asking those questions. And yeah, again, not just assuming because one person does it one way that they have to or mm-hmm. um, or that they have to do the extreme of want of um, what they're seeing on the on the opposing side for what they see it to be at the opposing side. Right. Yeah. And then let, this is the very last thing. Mm-hmm. Christians need to get a heck of a lot better at articulating mm-hmm. why religious freedom should be respected mm-hmm. and freedom of conscience should be respected. Most of us cannot articulate that, mm-hmm. and we need to be able to. Mm-hmm. That's a great first step, I think, mm-hmm. for a lot of Christians in order, yeah, to be able to articulate any of it because we have a lot of thoughts or um, when we hear a lot of things, but being able to actually say it for ourselves is a whole um, new ball game for a lot of us. So. Yeah, and there's tons of websites out there that have incredibly articulate articulations of this. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not hard to be like, why should why should Christians fight for freedom of conscience or argument for freedom of conscience or freedom of religion? And mm-hmm. it's every there's all kinds of it out there. Mm-hmm. But most of us haven't ever read it and never rehearsed the ideas enough that we could actually articulately repeat them. Right. Yep. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Nick. Um, Thank you also for interviewing Eric Stanley. Um, And thank you listeners for tuning in. Thank you.